Welcome to episode 67 of FRT, the IF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, once again speaking from my home in the Washington DC area and with a guest that brings a mix of a familiar voice and an exotic location, which I'll explain in a moment. Peter Deans returns to FRT, familiar to FRT as our first three-time guest. Peter first joined us back at Bali during the IAF annual membership meeting in 2018, bringing a risk management perspective to that meeting alongside Nomura CRO Yuji Nakata on episode 11. And he then joined us again last year from Amsterdam at Risk Mines. Peter was previously the Chief Risk Officer at the Bank of Queensland before retiring last year and launching his consultancy, Not Without Risk. And with that, Peter has launched uh, recently his new 52 Risks Framework, a risk for every week of the year, you might say. And we're gonna discuss this new framework and the learnings and applications of it in the context of current and recent trends. Peter, welcome to the new remote world of FRT and thank you for joining us once again. Thanks, Brad. I must say Bali and Amsterdam seem very distant memories with the change in the world that we live in today. Well, don't they just? And, and I mentioned the exotic at the outset, and that was not just because the last time I saw you was at Davos in January. And gee, that seems a world away already now. Uh, at that time, you were speaking at a cybersecurity seminar. But while we've been in this lockdown or working from home mode, we've had FRT guests join us now from Warsaw, from Los Angeles, Singapore, as well as locally across the river here in Washington. But you're joining us today from just outside of Byron Bay, a beautiful coastal town in northern New South Wales. And for those listeners who don't have Australian domestic geography as their strong point, it's the easternmost point on the Australian mainland, pretty much halfway up the east coast, a bit north of Sydney and, and much closer to Brisbane, which of course is the home of Bank of Queensland. Peter, perhaps could you start by giving us a sense of what it's like on the ground there at the moment? I think it's usually a, a thriving touristy region, but presumably very quiet, maybe eerie or a bit surreal at the moment, perhaps? Thanks, Brad. Yeah, it's a very unusual time for people everywhere in the world, not just in Australia, of course. Byron Bay, as pointed out, is you know it's a real tourist surfing and backpacker mecca, and it's become very much an all year round destination. But um, it's um, it's almost completely closed at the moment. Um, we have very little open, other than just uh, the essential <clears throat> shops, uh, butchers, uh, chemists, and so on. Um, it is a very pleasant place to be, I must admit, compared to being locked down in a city. Um, the impact here has been significant, uh, obviously, on tourism. The airport here, which is about 40 minutes' drive north on the Gold Coast, uh, actually closed about six weeks ago, and uh, it, it normally had flights every day from Korea, Japan, Thailand, Singapore, and, and there's, there's, there's been no flights for, for six weeks now. So everyone's pretty keen to see things open up again, but... I think acknowledge it's still still some weeks, if not months off. Yeah, it's such a, an unprecedented uncertainty, really, that we're we're all dealing with. And I want to return to COVID nineteen and the pandemic scenario a little later. But Peter, let's let's start by talking about the fifty two risk framework that you've developed, and we might move then on to how that fits the pandemic scenario, but also some of the risks that emerge with technology and digital transformation. Can we start? Perhaps could you tell us about the background uh, to how you developed the fifty two risk concept? Yeah, the 52 risks uh, as an idea was was born sort of during the GFC. And my background is commercial lending, corporate finance, institutional banking. And I guess over my career, most particularly in the GFC, I just saw a lot of businesses get into difficulties that I'd put in the category of some eminently preventable, actually. And some were the product of decisions that were made, you know, in the good times. And it sort of got me thinking that there's no there's no sort of real framework to sort of help their boards or management teams or even investors sort of look 
holistically at risk taking within particularly corporations, but obviously financial institutions as well. And I started sketching, uh, it was really on the back of an envelope, you know, sitting on planes and so on, um, what was the full list of risk categories that as a lender or a you know, credit, credit person I'd be looking at um, when, when undertaking credit assessments. Um, and I, I think originally I had about 48 risks, added a couple more, split some categories up, and then about five years ago landed on 52. And it was sort of my, uh, my vision that a bit later in life, perhaps my late in life passion, I'd pull the framework together and publish it in some form. So that's really the genesis of it, uh, is to really think about what's the full gamut of, of risks that any business needs to, needs to be thinking about. Um, they are categorised into strategic, financial and operational risks. Um, and to also have a way to explain what I sort of call primary risk issues and consequential risk issues or in simple terms, cause and effect, to show that some risks are actually risks that manifest themselves because of something else that's happened in the risk framework. So very much an education tool, uh, very much sort of, you know, taking, uh, again, a lot of the learnings that you see in credit risk assessment and more broadly communicating them to the business world. Given that you've outlined the, the timeline and the genesis there, whether in some ways a lot of the risk management discipline is perhaps catching up to where your thinking had been some years ago, because we've noticed a real trend at the IEF where we do the annual survey together with Ernst & Young, the, the annual risk management survey. You participated in that previously in your, your Bank of Queensland capacity. We've observed a real trend really in the last two or three years where the focus has shifted significantly from some of those traditional financial risks and more into the so-called non-financial risks about things like conduct and reputation and the like. And, and so I see this, this shift or this trend and it kind of it strikes me when I look at your framework that it's very recognising and embracing of, of that notion where you have a lot of risk categories that would kind of seem difficult to quantify or to measure. You know, you, you mentioned management risk uh, in your framework, for instance, as, as one example. And I'm just wondering whether, you know, what, what we see there is, is reflecting that growing focus that is, is hopefully emerging across the industry on non-financial risks and your sense of whether those are the risks that boards and management teams perhaps need to focus more on. Yeah, I think um, I think the point's a really interesting one, and maybe there's a little bit of history here, um, a bit of the research I've done, just looking at the history of enterprise risk management. It sort of it goes back to sort of really around the mid 1990s, and that's around the time of you know, the Asian financial crisis, and then moving through to uh, September 11, and, and obviously Enron also. And I think prior to that. Just more broadly, in terms of management thinking, there really wasn't a concept of um, enterprise risk management or a holistic approach to risk management. Um, if you look at what banks were doing and have continued to, or banks and financial institutions, and I, I do say FIs because I include the insurance sector and the funds management sector, which likewise do look at risk uh, through a slightly different lens for each of them. But if you just look at banks specifically, you sort of had two buckets of activities. Um, you had the very traditional credit risk, market risk, and then more recently operational risk, very much looked at as three distinct buckets, you know, three functional activities within within banks, uh, obviously with some regulatory guidance and, and railings to, to work through. And then you actually had within credit risk, this activity of credit managers looking holistically at a business to say, you know, what can impact the credit quality of the borrower, um, what what may cause the borrower financial distress. So you've got two separate activities, and I guess my thing was trying to 
do we how do we bring them together um, to show that it's not just um, you know financial sensitivity analysis in the case of lending to to a borrower it's it's a whole range of things that might affect the the competitive position of the borrower the industry they're in uh, obviously uh, macroeconomic impacts you know such as a, a decline in GDP how do you marry that with the need I think at board and a management level of any any institution whether you're within the finance sector or outside to have that similar sort of enterprise-wide view that that covers all manner of risks and as you've touched on you know more recently for banks and financial institutions they've had to turn their mind to a myriad of non-financial risks uh, some some peculiar and unique to the industry such as conduct risk some more broadly applicable such as cyber security risk and I guess more recently as we spoke in Amsterdam climate change risk one of the areas that I think has sort of been neglected a little bit in terms of awareness of how organizations manage risk is is this responsiveness or react reacting to what I sort of call flavor of the month risks a little bit unfortunately almost to the exclusion of, of anything a, any other risks and um, I think there's a there's a there's an, uh, an objective, I think, here where boards and management teams want to be looking continuously at the full spectrum of risks and not sort of, you know, lurching from risk to risk or not allowing one risk to dominate the conversation, you know, for an extended period of time because I think that's really the time at which um, you can take your eye off the ball a little bit in some, some risk categories. And that is a little bit of a challenge for, for, for CROs and risk managers who's I think one of their roles is to actually remind the organisation of what may be sort of risks sitting a little bit under the surface or potentially emerging risks that the organisation needs to be prepared for. To build on that point, actually, Peter, I think it's a good segue into where you perhaps see that there's most value or most potential to be gained from the framework you've developed. Because I think of it a bit where where banks and insurers generally tend to have quite sophisticated and well-developed risk teams, in some cases, large teams of very highly skilled risk professionals. So I wonder if, if perhaps on one hand, there's the notion of where can you take some of those, those learnings that you've seen in the industry and that expertise and help share that in a, an accessible framework into other industries. But of course, within finance, there's plenty of opportunity for improvement. And a little of what you've just been describing, I think, ties to the notion of how do you upskill the board and how do you ensure that you're presenting the right holistic assessment and, and inputs to the board. And I'm wondering if, if you know, is that how, how you would see you know, where perhaps the most you know, particular areas of potential and value for this framework are? I think the framework, again, in its most basic form can be a checklist that you know, small businesses, um, small to medium-sized companies, or even right up to the largest organisations operating in multiple countries uh, can really use to sort of um, almost check in a little bit. You know, have we have we discussed all of these risks? Are we comfortable with the linkages between the two of them? Are there any we need to revisit? It's really helping with you know judgment in some respects because I think as you touched on, there is a bias in you know particularly banks and financial institutions on wanting to constantly quantify and measure risks, and even the profession itself has has probably had, I think, a little bit of an unhealthy bias towards always wanting to measure and quantify. And, you know, we, we've got some very, very skilled quant expertise, you know, actuaries. I think that does take the focus away from some of the risk categories, which they can't easily be quantified. 
And for some that can be quantified, the quantification is somewhat irrelevant. Cybersecurity is, is quite a good example where, you know, at the end of the day, you can spend a lot of time and effort quantifying cybersecurity losses, remediation. But if you have, you know, a catastrophic cybersecurity event, the business may actually cease to exist or function. Obviously, you know, catastrophic reputation impact. And there's almost not a lot of point spending time and resources quantifying what are catastrophic outcomes. It's more important to actually focus on, well, how do we prevent the outcomes? And likewise, if you look at two of the strategic risks I have, which is management risk and key person risk, again, it's, it's somewhat of a pointless exercise to spend a lot of time quantifying the outcomes of those two categories. Obviously, if you have a CEO depart, which is highly regarded, you can make a guess at what the drop in market capitalization or enterprise value would be if that came unexpectedly. But ultimately, you would need to replace the CEO or fill the gaps in the management team with someone else of ideally equal caliber, which would mean that the business would continue to function. It would be still held in some, if not high regard by the market. Again, there's not a lot of point in quantifying the financial impact of some changes to the management team that were unexpected. It's probably more important to focus on things like succession planning, you know, the contractual arrangements for key team members. So I think there's a benefit of having a very easy to follow plain English um, you know, list of risks with obviously you know, a, a framework and methodology behind that that allows you to do deep dives, that allows you to um, periodically review specific risk categories, yet at the same time have uh, literally on the top of the agenda at each board or risk committee um, a, a bit of a check-in on, on how, uh, how the risk profile uh, is, is across the organisation using the framework. So I'm going to take another segue from a comment you made there. You used the phrase catastrophic event, and I wanted to pivot and talk about specifically on COVID-19, and I think that's probably a, a good term to introduce it. In terms of how we manage pandemic risk, and I can actually recall back in my, my banking career doing a stress test exercise about 12 or 13 years ago where we had a range of different stress test scenarios, and, and one of them was a pandemic. I think at that time it was a, an avian flu scenario that we were considering. But can I ask you, if, if we look at the, the 52 risk framework in that context, you know, could the framework help a, a company to prepare for or to predict a circumstance like a pandemic? And I noticed that you haven't called out pandemic as one of the specific risks within the, the 52, but you know, I imagine you see it as being embedded or, or more cross-cutting across a number of the risks that you have identified. Yeah, it's a good good question, Brad, and and, and others have asked the same same, same question. Uh, I mean, I, I deliberate when developing the framework, I did, did deliberately want to move away from very specific events, uh, which which were difficult to predict, um, both the frequency, nature, uh, and nature. Um, and an exam, examples I've given is if you look at the Asian tsunami, I think two thousand and four. Uh, obviously, the September 11 um, terrorist attacks and even the GFC itself, which was a major financial markets dislocation and liquidity event uh, in, in its, in its you know, I guess, early stages. Um, I, I think there's little point, you know, boards and management teams of companies more broadly trying to predict what is the next, whether it's a black swan or just a, a, an event which comes from left of field such as the tsunami or, or September 11, I think it's more important to say if something happens under a number of scenarios, which might be a supply chain shock or it might be uh, a significant revenue hit or it might be um, a financial markets uh, dislocation, which, which may mean your financier or investors 
may be impacted primarily. Uh, it's more about what are the scenarios that could impact us, not so much what is the um, cause of it, but you know, what are the types of scenarios where our business activities and our financial position might be impacted. I mean, I think the, there'll be a lot, of, uh, a lot of textbooks and things written about this COVID-19 pandemic period. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it, no one could ever have imagined, um, you know, virtually every country shutting down at the same time, business, um, you know, ceasing to operate, you know, almost comprehensively across certainly the Western world. Um, so I think it's it's difficult to to um, plan for this type of scenario. But as you pointed out, and I'm aware there's many banks were, were frequently running pandem- pandemic scenarios, uh, certainly from a business continuity perspective, uh, certainly from um, a supply chain interruption perspective uh, for, for some of the corporate business, larger corporate businesses. And they're ones that had really invested in risk management capability, um, had, had taken seriously things like scenario planning and stress testing. And of course, you know, the regulators in the, the finance sector require it. But of course, you know, there's, there's degrees to which people do, um, do invest in those types of capability. And I think the, the experience I'm sure we'll see come to the fore is that those that were better prepared and invested in um, a range of risk management capabilities uh, will, will have been, uh, will have fared a bit better uh, in this, this period. So again, I think it's not so much uh, needing to have a list of extreme events in the framework. It's more actually thinking about how resilient is the business from both an operations and a financial perspective. The two ways I tend to think of it are, are in terms of both the operational, you know, ensuring that you're keeping your, your staff safe, that business operations are continuing, that customer expectations are being met and that customers aren't being endangered. And then on the other hand, there is the more financial, the credit nature, what we're seeing more widely through the economy. But as you look at how the, the industry is performing in risk management at this time, you know, are there particular early learnings that are most striking you, both in terms of, of where this is being done well and where it is not? In the finance sector more specifically, as I touched on, I think banks, again, by their nature, being such a critical part of the infrastructure of any any economy, uh, have had to and have been required to invest in a whole range of um, business continuity um, uh, type measures. And uh, I think it's it's shown that banking is critical infrastructure for all economies. I think it's shown that that investment's paid off. So I think the early learnings are that many of the you know the off the shelf crisis management plans have actually worked reasonably well. What I'm seeing, not just within the finance sector but outside the finance sector, is those that have ended up with quite complex um, business operations and the design of their business models, which includes let's say, uh, offshoring and outsourcing to areas, to countries such as the Philippines and India, have had to sort of quite quickly unwind those. And it's on a scale that they probably hadn't contemplated. Um, there's a number of banks in Australia who yeah, literally overnight had to um, to move quite a lot of their customer-facing contact centres back onshore. And, of course, you know they, they didn't have the infrastructure in place I think it's been similar for some of the telecommunications and airlines. So I think uh, some of the early lessons in that area is um, that businesses needed to be a little bit more prepared for a comprehensive and more enduring um, disruption than perhaps just 
um, you know, one one site being out of action for a couple of days or, or a week or two. So I think that's one of the early lessons. Um, I think uh, just looking more broadly into um, the corporate sector, and this again is a very similar lesson to the GFC and it's sort of always is a little bit depressing and disheartening to see mistakes being repeated. But but those businesses that uh, kept reserve liquidity, reserve cash flow, uh, were at the less leveraged end of the spectrum, have ended up in much much better shape. And uh, we've seen we've seen in Australia and a few of the other countries, you know, what I'd call emergency capital raisings. And uh, I sort of said to I've said to some people from time to time, it's it's quite interesting that you see in this period how many. Uh, consumers and corporations are effectively living paycheck to paycheck. So I think for the the boards of, uh, of, of groups, and again, I, I do say uh, banks, financial institutions, as well as corporates that have adopted a more measured and arguably conservative approach to cash flow, liquidity, and their their balance sheet leverage um, have have fared better. Um, whilst I don't think we're probably in the um, phase of uh, taking advantage of opportunities that, that may arise from an M&A perspective, um, I'm sure that over the course of 2020 and 2021, uh, you'll probably see, as, as we always do, a bit of corporate activity uh, with the financially stronger groups, you know, taking advantage of opportunities that do arise. I wanted to also switch beyond the, the COVID focus to talk about technology more broadly and our technology intersects risk. Although you've given, again, a couple of, of very nice cues to that point. One thing we've observed in the early stages of, of some of the, the, the COVID reaction in the technology sector has been that the tech firms are, the big tech firms are strong and well capitalized and continuing to generate revenues, whilst some of the smaller firms are perhaps more struggling or having their uh, funding models perhaps more exposed, in particular if they're developing a technology which is still at, a, at an early stage of development. So I think your point about M&A activity um, certainly parallels a lot of what we're expecting to see across the, the tech sector, but also there where you allude to you know, being prepared and needing to relocate and the issues of data centres uh, and call centres. One thing that strikes me, I think, is that the firms that have already got significant elements of their business on cloud or got a well-advanced cloud strategy have probably been better placed to absorb the, the threat or the hit to business continuity whereas you know, some of the others that have perhaps been reliant on a traditional data centre in a particular site are a lot more exposed if that site becomes a coronavirus hotspot. So I guess if I can quickly ask you for a reaction there of the extent to which the role of, of cloud as being a, a risk mitigant has perhaps been amplified or more demonstrable so far through this crisis. Yeah, I think it's, a, again, a very good question. Um, I think Cloud in itself hasn't necessarily been the end product. I I think it's probably a feature of organisations that have been more progressive and advanced in thinking about their business and IT architecture and actually distributing a lot of their applications and technologies more broadly rather than having them concentrated in one type of site. I think what you've tended to see is that the organisations that are further down the, the digital path or roadmap have tended to, at the same time as uh, moving, again, a lot of applications into the cloud, have actually um, focused on also improving uh, the way that the users or employees interact with the technology and processes, which has tended to be allowing them to work remotely, uh, not being physically tied to desktop 
um, computers, for example. So, so I think it's probably just a, an overall, um, you know, theme or feature of uh, of having uh, you know more advanced thinking towards you know the workplace and processes rather than necessarily being uh, cloud as the reason this this has all happened. Uh, and again, I think some of the examples that I've heard of in recent weeks is that. Uh, some organisations, uh, you know, had very good um, uh, sort of plans and technologies in place to, to give people laptops to work remotely, but they hadn't quite rolled out the bandwidth uh, between, you know, all parts of their sort of IT ecosystem. So it was a little bit like we would have got there, but just weren't quite there. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, that you have got some banks wh- who are wholly reliant upon people coming into their, wh- sorry, were wholly reliant on people coming into their offices to log into a desktop machine and do their work. And I think they're the ones that have uh, found it very, very, a very tough transition. One thing I learnt uh, just yesterday speaking to one of our, our colleagues in London was that uh, it's actually been the, the older, most prestigious apartment buildings in London that have generally got the, the worst connectivity, uh, the worst wiring, the worst uh, telecommunication infrastructure, uh, and that that's been an issue uh, for people that are uh, resident in those, those kind of facilities. I, I want to keep going with technology. Uh, we are on, on FRT, of course, and the T is for technology. When you last joined us on FRT at Riskminds in December uh, in Amsterdam, that was on episode 55, together with first-round CRO Jaco Grobler and my IAF colleague Richard Gray. And at that time, certainly pre-pandemic, the, the biggest theme at Riskminds, as you mentioned earlier, was climate risk. But the number two we identified was data conduct risk, and the number three was the execution risk associated with technology, digital transformation, uh, and the like. And not meaning to overdo the South African references, as well as uh, Jaco with us, um, his compatriot Trevor Adams of Nedbank spoke in that conference about the execution risk uh, on a panel there as well. So if I can pick up these, these two issues with you and, and again, relating it to your 52 risks framework, are there particular key learnings or applications or insights uh, in terms of how we should be thinking about these two specific issues, the, the conduct risk associated with data and the execution risk with technology and transformation programs? I think with some of these risk categories, uh, the devil is in the detail. Um, the operational risk categories under 52 risks is is the longest list of categories. So there's 19. And uh, I have had people say from time to time, gee, it's a long list of risks overall and including operational risk. And my sort of response is, well, you know, managing large complex organisations is, is actually a very, very challenging uh, activity. And if you look at, uh, let's say, the, the data risk, conduct risk, which is a whole range of you know, regulatory and compliance risks in part, as well as good business practice to, to manage your clients' data or the, and the organisation's data. Likewise, um, implementing technology projects, no matter whether they're small or large, is still not an easy exercise. And I think this is where, you know, I think the industry, and I probably say the more broader IT industry, is still coming to terms with, you know, what does good look like? How can we make sure that all projects are implemented, you know, relatively trouble-free? And I think it's still a skill set that needs to be developed, um, both within the IT and project sector, as well as within institutions themselves, um, because a lot of the risks that manifest themselves uh, do, do, do come down to design and execution of the various initiatives uh, that are put in place to manage the risks uh, that that may arise in in these downside scenarios. Again, whether it's data privacy, cybersecurity, 
regulatory compliance and conduct. So I think, um, unfortunately, it's a little bit of, uh, you know, management teams, risk managers sort of need to roll their sleeves up a little bit and uh, continue to upskill themselves and their teams in some of these um, new, newer fields. I think on that question more broadly around COVID-19 and technology, which we sort of touched on as well, um, I think there's sort of really no going back here. And I think for CROs in particular, where in the past, you know, organisations may have chosen what I'd say is an easier route to say offshore or outsource some activities. Um, I think they may need to stare into what we, what may be a, a less comfortable area for many uh, risk managers and CROs of you, you need to actually implement a technology solution rather than just outsource existing processes to a, to a third party. So again, I think that's one of the real challenges that um, uh, I think the industry sort of, you know, some some have, some have stared into it and uh, charged on, but others have tended to shy away and gone for a little bit of the the easier solution. Peter, just lastly, um, we've I think discussed the a lot of the really topical items of the day, but I want to bring all of that back now to your your framework. And if you could tell us a little bit about what's next and what plans you have for the fifty two risk framework in the years ahead. Uh, yeah, look, I think there's a there's a couple of um, couple of ideas I've got in mind, and and this um, this very much you know I've sort of said over the years it's sort of been a little bit of a hobby and like um, my, my sort of side gig in some respects now, um, but I, I'd really like to um, see it more broadly taken up, and and my sort of goal for the rest of this year is just to increase awareness of the framework. It is a free free tool, and for those wanting to. Have a look. The website's um, 52risks.com. Uh, all the materials are free to download. So I'm very much just keen to build awareness. Um, I'm halfway through writing the book of 52 Risks, which will be a management book that, again, I'd like to see widely distributed and I need to find a, a publisher with the vision to publish it with me. Um, and then I must say longer term, I, I re- really would love to see said put into the curriculum uh, at a university and you know i think the the u.s universities are the pinnacle of management education uh, with obviously a couple in europe and the uk but i'd love to see more um more of the university um particularly executive education um and post uh, post-grad education uh focus on risk management um even today there's very very few courses um in any of the you know universities that focus specifically on risk management. Uh, if you look at the MBA courses, very few have risk management mod- modules. And I think this is where management education has fallen behind a little bit. So I think um, that's probably more a medium-term goal is to, to see if I can get a couple of universities to um, you know, to build build some courses around, um, you know, certainly the 52 risk framework, but uh, even just, um, just taking some of the very good skills and expertise I know the risk management profession has um, to um, you know, just improve the general business knowledge around risk management. Well, I think you've got a great framework that blends uh, the the intellectual rigor together with the practical experience that underpins it that that would fit that mould uh, very very well. So, Peter, thank you for joining us once again here on FRT, uh, our first three time guest. Uh, you've been once again very considered uh, and very generous in the insights that you've shared. At the IF, we have our regional CRO for a uh, cycle coming up shortly and, of course, going virtual in the current environment. You might have just written uh, our agendas for us uh, across each of those events because I think the, the things you've outlined are, are very much what's front of mind for risk professionals all over the world. If I can highlight a couple of things that, I, that really struck me and that really resonated from our discussion, 
I like where you started with the, the notion of ensuring that you're keeping your eye on all risks and looking beyond just perhaps the flavor of the month. And that notion of the holistic presentation to the board, that holistic view of risks and perhaps looking beyond the, the silos of some of the traditional structures or constructs we may have had. And with that, the way you talked about the, the natural bias to quantify and how that can perhaps inadvertently underplay or understate the focus that needs to be there on some risks. And I suspect that's not only a hypothetical, but that's something that's actually happened in, uh, in a number of cases. And the increasing focus that CROs really have been putting on the non-financial risks uh, is probably a good sign that's, that's testament to, to, to swinging on that. The lesson you told of coming from the current situation of the need to be prepared, being prepared, for instance, for a site that may no longer be operational. And I think you, you mentioned the example of some of the Australian banks, but I think it's a global trend that we've observed, certainly when, when India moved to uh, a large-scale lockdown a couple of weeks ago. I think India is still in lockdown in particular cities or states, but, uh, but it's a bit um, uh, variable across the country now. But when India first moved to a, a very heavy lockdown, there were a lot of concerns amongst a number of the international firms right around the world who had a reliance on, on data centres there. And I think this perhaps ties also to your point that um, you know, we need to be thinking less of cloud as necessarily just the end product, but rather that it is the, the increased cloud usage is a, uh, an impressive feature we see of the firms that have been thinking and working to enable the versatility in their business. And lastly, the point you, you made about uh, technology and COVID, that there is no going back, but also it's a time when we need to confront some of those hard decisions. And that may include where we need to be building capabilities rather than taking some of the easier or, or cheaper options that might have looked more economic in a, in a different time. So, Peter, thank you once again. It's been great to have you with us once again on FRT. Thanks, Brad. And I look forward to seeing you and the, the team either virtually or in person during the course of 2020. Virtually, certainly. Uh, in person might take a little bit longer, I'm afraid, but we'll look forward to it. And looking ahead on FRT, with the recent refresh of the Libra white paper and with central bank digital currency developments emerging across China, Sweden, the Bank of England discussion paper recently, and many others, we're going to look at the latest across the realm of digital currencies. We're going to speak with our partners over at ISDA on the new common domain model that they've been developing as an open source data standard for economic events through trade life cycles. And we'll continue with the IF's digital transformation series with Deloitte, the second paper in that series uh, to be published in May, which will look at some of the success factors and enablers uh, following the report that we published and previously and covered back on episode 60. So please join us again for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for being with us on FRT.